Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Challenging Cases in PAH, A Deeper Dive, is provided by the American Thoracic Society and AKH, and is supported by an independent educational grant from Actillion Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated, a Janssen Pharmaceutical Company of Johnson & Johnson, and Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Great. Well, thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be here today for this program, Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension, A Deeper Dive. I'm excited to touch upon a couple of topics that we don't speak about quite as frequently. Um, I'm a professor of medicine. Michigan, and I'll direct the pulmonary hypertension program here. And I am thrilled to be joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Richard Chanick, uh, who also directs the pulmonary vascular disease program at UCLA. So, uh, Rich, from cold, snowy Michigan to warm, sunny LA, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, uh, as was mentioned, please feel free to send in your questions during the course of this talk. I think one of the uh, most fun parts of programs like this for me is the question and answer period at the end, and, and Dr. Chanick and I will do everything we can to try to get all of your questions answered either as we go along or at the end. The learning objectives for this program are to discuss the 2018 World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension, new threshold for the normal range of pulmonary artery pressures that we now use in the diagnosis to talk a little bit about the diagnostic tests, the functional classification and differential diagnostic considerations that we need to address to provide a diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension and to develop treatment strategies for optimal management of patients. And we'll have a couple of cases, uh, including one case of um, a very advanced patient that I think will provide some important teaching opportunities that we, we sometimes don't focus on. So in section one, we'll talk a little bit about definition, diagnosis, and some of the management options. So this is the change in the hemodynamic criteria that was a result of the Sixth World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension. Basically, the recommendation was to lower the definition from a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 25 to a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 20. So on the left, you see the old definition, and on the right, you see the new definition that includes that mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than or equal to 20. Of course, you still have to have a normal left heart filling pressure, a wedge of less than or equal to 15, and the pulmonary vascular resistance needs to be elevated. Now, one of the reasons this was done is because of really a review of a lot of data suggesting that a normal mean pulmonary artery pressure is about 14 with a standard deviation of about three. So really the upper limit of normal that, that should encompass more than 95% of the normal population is a mean less than 20. I think that coupled with some more recent data about the worst outcomes in patients who have mean pulmonary artery pressures in that low 20 range, that 21 to 25 range, really is what spurred this change in the definition. Now, there were some very um, modest changes in the classification as well. 
Um, we all know that group one pulmonary arterial hypertension is, is that hemodynamic definition that I just spoke about uh, without other significant heart disease, lung disease, or thromboembolic disease. So the group one that we refer to as PAH that has the prototype of idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, what we used to call primary pulmonary hypertension. Um, 1.2 is heritable PAH, and there have been a number of genes that have been identified that are associated with heritable PAH. Uh, there's drug and toxin induced. There's the associated connective tissue disease being the most common. 1.5 was added. This is something new in this classification. Those very uh, unique patients who over the long-term respond to just calcium channel blockers, they're those patients that have that very robust vasodilator response when tested with an acute vasodilator in the cardiac catheterization laboratory at the time of their diagnosis and then do well clinically on calcium channel blockers. So that is an addition or a change uh, for this criteria for, for this classification at the Sixth World Symposium, um, and then incorporating the PVOD and PCH subtypes into 1.6. So those were the main changes in group one. Group two, pulmonary hypertension, anything that elevates left heart filling pressures can cause a more passive pulmonary hypertension, and you see many of the causes listed there, systolic dysfunction, diastolic dysfunction, valvular heart disease. Um, anything that results in hypoxemia can contribute to group three pulmonary hypertension. Group four, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is a very unique type of pulmonary hypertension that can sometimes be cured with a surgical approach. And then group five are patients with unclear or multifactorial mechanisms. And it's really a potpourri of different diagnoses there. Now, um, the functional classification is very similar to the New York Heart Association functional classification. One is easy. The patient can really do whatever they want without getting short of breath. Four is easy. The patient can't do anything without getting short of breath or short of breath at rest or with even any minor exertion or they have syncope. And two and three are a little bit in between uh, those two. Uh, functional class two is a patient who can do um, um, ordinary physical activity without getting short of um, breath um, or, or before getting short of breath. And class three is like less than ordinary. I often use a flight of stairs as a, as a range between that. I would call a functional class two patient as someone who can go up a flight of stairs without dyspnea, but might get dyspnea with a second flight of stairs. And the functional class three patient might not be able to go up a, a flight of stairs. Now those functional class four patients, those really sick patients are few and far between, but sometimes we we do get them and they can be quite challenging. So I'll, I'll let Rich talk about a case that might um, be very um, demonstrative for that. Uh, thanks, Val. Yeah, so we have, welcome everybody. Um, we said, yeah, we thought we would uh, present this case that's, I think, a lot of what many of us face for some of our sickest patients. In other words, when they come into the ICU and some of the critical care aspects. I think one of the really advantages of having effective therapy for pH is that patients are living longer, you know, but sometimes they, you know, get sicker. And I, I, I just thought I would go through a case that illustrates that and get a, a lot of Val's thoughts on on how she manages these patients in the ICU 
So this is a 56-year-old uh, woman with connective tissue disease, had been diagnosed with PH four years prior, um, and actually had been treated with combination therapy with an ERA and a PD-5 inhibitor and been doing reasonably well, but noted over a couple of weeks that she started getting worse, leg swelling, shortness of breath. She did admit to some indiscretion with dietary intake of salt, um, and she hadn't really been weighing herself regularly, which we certainly encourage all our patients to do. Um, she also had noted maybe a cough and some nasal symptoms about a week prior to admission that she thought was just a URI. So um, on the day of admission, she actually had pre-thinkably going up the stairs. She thought she was gonna pass out, sat down on the stairs, and then was brought to the hospital. Um, when she got to the hospital, she was awake, but clearly mildly tachypneic. Blood pressure was a little bit low, as you can see here, and she was mildly tachycardic with OG saturation on two liters of 92%, wasn't normally on oxygen. Um, and we could hear a pretty obvious right-sided S3 and a TR murmur along with clear uh, peripheral edema. So um, we got a quick echocardiogram, which confirmed a very poor-looking RV, um, severe pulmonary hypertension, and what looked like a moderate pericardial effusion, which she hadn't had previously. Um, she had maybe a small intratrate in left lower low, but otherwise clear. Um, and so she was admitted to the ICU for right ventricular failure. Um, I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do, and then again, I'll get Val's thoughts. I mean, this is obviously a sick patient that we face, is how I approach, you know, these patients and um, what are what I call sort of the pillars of managing RV failure in the ICU, from assessing the severity, identifying and treating triggers, optimizing fluid status, i.e. preload, arterial pressure, inotropy, and afterload reduction on the RV. These are all things I think are important when we're managing these patients. So, um, Val, maybe I'll, I'll stop and, and, and say, you know, what, what do you think of a case like this? What's your sort of initial assessment and sort of initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, Rich, this is obviously a very sick lady. We're worried about her. Um, I really love the way you've divided this up into the pillars of management, um, and I, I think it provides a, a really wonderful framework to go through such a sick case. Mm -hmm. So I, I approach it very, very similarly to what you've done here. Right. And so, yeah, that, so the great minds think alike, eh? So, the, um, <laughs> so yeah, so this isn't a, a, you know, everybody knows this. What are the parameters we look at for heart failure and cardiogenic shock and all the biomarkers that we look at and track like lactate and BMP and other, you know, liver chemistries, renal function are all things that obviously we try to do to assess severity. When we talk about triggers of right ventricular failure, I think it's another important point. And, you know, these are the things that I, I always think about is why a patient has really sort of fallen off the cliff and why they deteriorated. You know, I highlight or bold PE and infection, maybe with a special emphasis on infection, because that seems to be often the trigger that pushes people over. But we've certainly seen, you know, hyperthyroidism that wasn't suspected, anemia, um, obviously noncompliance with medication or diet can do it. Anything to add to this list, Val, that things that you think about for triggers? Yeah, I think I think it's a great list. I, I think I would focus in addition to what you've highlighted on just the volume management. I mean sometimes these folks can be 
fluid overloaded without diuretic withdrawal or interruption, like maybe they mm-hmm. have one really high salt day and they start retaining fluid. And then even though they're taking their diuretics, they're not absorbing them. And it starts that vicious cycle of, of volume overload. So I, I think that's yeah. really an important point to highlight as well as, as the others that you so nicely elucidated. Yeah, it's really scary how little change in their sodium intake can really push them over the edge. So when it comes to that, my, my first, you know, mantra is, you know, preload, preload, preload. And I think, and this is sort of editorializing in some ways that, you know, what I've learned over the years is that, you know, when people are taught that the RV is preload dependent and you can underfill the RV in these patients, that's very rarely the case. And, you know, all these patients actually are, are have excessive preload. And so I think I've become more and more uh, aggressive and impressed with the impact of really aggressive diuresis in patients. And, you know, you, you look at these hearts, we all talk about ventricular interdependence and the effects that an overloaded RV can have on LV function. Um, would you concur with that, Val, that sort of general philosophy? Uh, I- yeah, absolutely, Rich. I mean, every July I have to give this lecture to the house staff, right? Because a sick pH patient comes in hypotensive, and what's usually the knee-jerk response to hypotension? It's it's give fluid, um, and in reality, that's the right thing to do in such a small minority of PAH patients that come in. Um, in, in shock and, and RV failure. I mean, I don't want to say you never do it because there is that occasional patient who's had a GI bleed or bad diarrhea or distributive shock or, you know, that happens occasionally. But more mm-hmm. often than not, these folks are, are volume overloaded as it is. And if their neck veins are at 15 centimeters, 18 centimeters, there, there's you know, there's no good in giving them more fluid. All giving them more fluid does is sit in the right ventricle and then worsen those problems that Dr. Chanik was mentioning, the interventricular interaction, and sometimes even cause uh, worsening right ventricular ischemia. So it's it's really important. It's scary to, to people, but very often you need to push diuretics in these situations. Yeah, yeah, 100% agree. And what I might... My mantra, again, is to the house staff is, you know, whatever diuretic dose you, you think you're going to give, double it. Double it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, if you say give 40, I'm going to say give 80 and so forth. It's a little bit facetious. And but, give it IV, right, because they're not going to oh, yeah. absorb it. Yeah. I mean, I'm big on diuretic drips. Um, they're easy to titrate, and you can always back off. The next thing that we talk about, and I'll sort of lump the next two really in blood pressure and inotropy. So, you know, I've been very impressed, you know, that, you know, these people, I think sometimes are undertreated and, and I've become very uh, vigilant about what their blood pressure is, both on the um, systolic and MAP. Val talked about RV ischemia, which I think is a, a real issue due to um, right coronary hypoperfusion. As you recall, not to get too technical, but the right coronary artery um, is perfused throughout systole and diastole, unlike the left, which is only during diastole for the most part. But in a patient with very high right ventricular pressures, one can actually underfill the right coronary during systole. And so, therefore, I mean, it's a rationale for thinking about not just mean arterial pressure, but systolic pressure as well. And we can debate on which presser to use, 
um, in these patients. I think that would be a debate that nobody would win because um, there's not real data on one presser over the other. I mean, do you have sort of an approach or a favorite? I, I like vasopressin. There's this theoretical issue that it may cause less pulmonary vasoconstriction than sympathomimetic drugs like norepinephrine. What do you think about that, Val? Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, Rich, it's all theory, right? And and so I think that's a fine choice. You know, we certainly don't want to increase the heart rate too much because they do need the diastolic filling time because, as you were trying to explain with the coronary um, anatomy um, physiology there, that, that they it, the, the right ventricle should fill in both, um, should be perfused in both systole and diastole. And so, you're, you, you know, in patients with pulmonary hypertension, their right ventricular systolic pressure can approach their aortic pressure. They don't fill in systole at all. And then as you increase their right ventricular filling pressures, you reduce the filling in, in diastole, um, which is the only place they're filling at that point. So you don't want their heart rate to get too fast so that you have more diastole to, to get that coronary perfusion to the right ventricle. So sometimes dopamine doesn't work as well, for, you know, for, for those reasons. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I agree. And, um, you know, you know, tachycardia is always an issue. And, you know, and in addition to the blood pressure and perfusion pressure, you know, we talk about inotropes. And, you know, I like to separate that out when I'm thinking about it and teaching about it because, you know, there are drugs that obviously can directly increase contractility, to the RV, which we, you know, heart failure doctors use. We use um, drugs like dobutamine and milrinone, which aren't pressors, but inotropes. And so I like to think about, you know, those as, as separate in a way. And, and we certainly use inotropic support quite frequently in addition to vasopressor support. Now, you can combine it with a drug like norepinephrine, but sometimes, you know, my approach is, you know, you give a, pre a pure presser like phenylephrine or vasopressin and then a pure inotrope following things like central venous saturations, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what what is your sort of style yeah, with that? No, I think that's, yeah, I, I think what you've said is really reasonable. Rich, the other thing I would add, and I know you're going to get to it, is that in pulmonary hypertension, in pulmonary arterial hypertension, you, you know, IV epoprostenol is, I think, anotropic in these situations. And so sometimes that's, um, you, you know, in, in addition to being a pulmonary vasodilator, I, you know, it, like it may get rid of afterload, as you you say, is so um, promptly is the the main problem. But you know, many of us think that that they have anotropic effects. The prostacyclins have anotropic effects as well. Yeah, now that raises a question. It's something that I always sort of wrestle with. And you know, in these patients, these sort of super sick patients who are on some pressors. I mean, what? point would you do pull the trigger on IV EPO if they're not already on it, you know, knowing that you can get some hypotension with it? I mean, what's your, this is sort of a little bit in the weeds, but, you know, when would you start a patient like this EPO? Would you start a low dose up front or wait till you, you know, your blood pressure is better or what? Yeah, I mean, I think it's highly individualized, but I, I think yeah. many such patients as you're describing are going to get better with EPO, and if you support their blood pressure and get them on EPO, I, you know, I tend to try to do it earlier if it's feasible. Yeah, yeah, me, me too. And then finally, afterload reduction, which obviously is ultimately the problem. Um, if you can lower pulmonary vascular resistance, you'll improve RV function along with all the other supportive cares. And so, you know, to do that, you know, we have a number of options. Again, this patient's already on oral pH medicine. We talked about IV epoprostenol. Um, again, the one con concern is that you don't make them more hypotensive with a systemic 
with systemic vasodilating effects. And then there's this, I think, really theoretical, I'm not sure, proven issue of worsening VQ matching by giving a, a nonspecific pulmonary vasodilator. For that region, and I don't know what you do in Michigan, you know, we put these people, you know, fairly frequently on inhaled vasodilators uh, right up front, almost coming in the door with either NO or inhaled ibuprofenol. Um, again, little data to guide which is better. Um, and, you know, obviously watch out for things like a patient who has mixed shock with a left-sided failure. But um, right. what, what do you think right. about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we use nitric and, and are really migrating more towards inhaled depot as well just because of the cost thing that, that, uh, that you mentioned. I guess I would ask you, uh, it's a good point to ask uh, the question about what sort of monitoring these folks need. You know, obviously they need an arterial line. You mentioned mentioned CVP. Do you actually put a swan in, in these folks and, and leave a swan in during their course? I really rarely do. Um, and, I, you know, our ICU attendees will say, well, why can't you just put a, a line in of a swan in? I'm like, it's really probably not going to change what we do because we kind of know what we're going to find. We already, you know, have a patient with severe pH. I think you can get reasonable surrogate for cardiac output with central venous saturation and CVP and the other biomarkers and avoid uh, having a PA catheter. So I'm just not sure how we'll change management in these patients like this. Do you agree? Or? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, but the key is you have to have an art line. You have to have a CVP. Those are, those are actually Absolutely. the most critical. And then I, I think, like, if you're worried that they've got mixed disease, that their left heart filling pressures are high, you know, for whatever reason, or that, you know, if a patient gets, gets worse as, you escalate pulmonary vasodilators and you worry that you're putting them into pulmonary edema. You know, there may be other reasons that you want to get it, but for the, the more clear-cut group 1 PAH patients, uh, mm -hmm. we often get by with just the CVP and the art line. Yeah, agreed. As usual. And then finally, and it's, you know, the, the optional mechanical support, which obviously has gained popularity, the circuits have gotten better, and the ability to get a patient onto VA ECMO, or even central cannulation, you know, um, is is there. And, in a, you know, obviously a specialized center, you want to have that option. You know, we question the use of RVAD, and we've been asked about that, although I'm not impressed that that has a real role in this type of patient due to the very high PVR. And then, you know, the question right. of what's the endpoint of ECMO? Is it only in patients who are ready, waiting for transplant? or could actually be a bridge to recovery. When should we pull the trigger? Because you obviously will face the dilemma in some cases of not being able to come off. What do you think? Right. It's, I mean, it's obviously a bridge to transplant, but I think if you've identified a reversible cause, you know, if they have an infection, if there's something that's reversible, it could be a bridge to recovery in those patients. Uh, Rich, while we're on this topic here, there are a couple of questions that might be appropriate to answer now. One, one was about um, hemofiltration, and one was about whether you've seen pulmonary edema with the use of inhaled uh, EPO or inhaled nitric oxide. Do you just want to briefly answer yeah. that? Yeah, two great questions. So, yeah, the, the use of, of CRRT type of uh, technologies is something, yeah, we're, we're actually pretty aggressive with in patients. And, you know, either ultrafiltration or in some cases, you know, actual dialysis is something that we, we pull the trigger on. I think fairly early in a patient who's not really uh, promptly diuresing with our aggressive IV diuresis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have two or three patients right now that are getting ultrafiltrated for fluid removal. And it's obviously a very, effect, you know, very effective adjunct. And then in terms of um, 
of um, uh, pulmonary edema, as we kind of alluded to, in the patients you do have some left heart issues, possibly patients with PVOD, you know, you could potentially by increasing pulmonary blood flow worsen pulmonary edema. But, you know, the nice thing about inhaled NO and really EPO is they're very, very short acting. And so if you're seeing an adverse event like that, you can shut it off and, and it goes away very quickly. Um, Great. So, uh, so what happened to your patient? Yeah, so we did all the things that we were both talking about in terms of, you know, lining her up. Um, again, she was quite sick. Um, CVP is 16, central venous had a 52%. Um, we started on pressors with vasopressin as well as milrinone for, for a low cardiac output. We started a Lasix strip. We did give her inhaled nitric oxide, and we empirically treated her for pneumonia given the left lower lobe infiltrate. She um, improved, and we're, we were very happy with her response to diuretics and supportive care. And you can see here um, improvement in hemodynamics, decrease in CVP to 8. We did start um, IV epoprostenol, which we slowly titrated. Um, and then we weaned off the NO, the milrinone, and the vasopressin over, you know, three to five days. And she was discharged in day 12, doing very, very well on IV epo, as well as her underlying treatments. And a month after discharge, she's doing absolutely beautifully. So, well, that's, you know. What a wonderful story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing we've learned, you know, I've learned certain doing this for a long time as well as you have, is that, you know, these people you can save. You know, there are a lot of things we do in critical care that we sometimes feel we're doing feudal care. But these are patients that if you do your best critical care based on physiologic principles, you can get them through and get them back to where they were. So with that, yeah, I'll think. So I, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I'll, no, I'll turn I, it over I, to you uh, now to kind of go through some other okay. stuff. <laughs> okay, great. So so when you talk about making the diagnosis and getting it right, I mean, I, I think fortunately the cases that we get shipped to us in, in cardiogenic shock or, you know, bad right ventricular failure are few and far between. Most of the patients that we see, we, you know, we do the, the usual outpatient workup and uh, the echocardiogram is is really a cornerstone. It's in fact what gets most of the patients into our office, right? So, so uh, of course they estimate a pulmonary artery pressure on an echocardiogram, but it, in my opinion, that's like not not one of the most important things in terms of determining the severity of the pulmonary hypertension. It's really taking a good look at that right ventricle, the size, the function, how the right ventricle interacts with the left ventricle, really that motion of that interventricular septum. Does the left ventricle still own it and the, and the you know left ventricle looks like a donut or a bagel? Or is the right ventricle starting to take over and you get that D-shaped septum? So I think that's really important to look at. Of course, group 1 PAH is rare, and so you also want to look at the left heart. Of course, you know, most of the patients with pulmonary hypertension on echocardiograms have elevated left heart filling pressures due to left heart disease, systolic dysfunction, diastolic dysfunction, valvular heart disease, and the echo is wonderful for looking at all of that. We often do a bubble study with the very first echo that we do on, on a PAH referral to look for perhaps a missed congenital heart defect. Uh, and it's important to assess whether or not they have a pericardial effusion because that has quite important prognostic uh, signs. 
Now, the right heart catheterization is required to make a diagnosis of PAH. Um, we already talked about the hemodynamic definition, and you, you can't make that diagnosis without the PAH or without the right heart catheterization. Um, of course, you look for the other etiologies. You can do a shunt run if you suspect congenital heart disease. It's really critical to measure the left heart filling pressure. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's really critical that that first right heart catheterization be really meticulous and measure saturations, measure not just pulmonary artery pressure, but right atrial pressure, left heart filling pressure. Um, you have to have a good wedge pressure tracing, and if you don't have a good wedge pressure tracing, sometimes you need to directly measure a left ventricular end diastolic pressure. Of course, you need to measure cardiac output, and then you have all the information you need to calculate a pulmonary vascular resistance. At the time of that first right heart catheterization, it's very important to do a vasodilator challenge, particularly in those patients with idiopathic heritable or PAH associated with drugs and toxins to um, assess which patients might be appropriate for calcium channel blockers. So it's, it's very important to do a, a thoughtful, meticulous uh, right heart catheterization. Uh, Rich, you spent a fair amount of time in the cath lab. Anything you want to add to that? Um, no, I mean you 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 said it perfectly. I mean you, you know how you interpret these waveforms in hemodynamics is obviously critical, and I think the experience with right heart cath and not just performing it, but interpreting things. You know where in the respiratory cycle you measure things, and and you know we see patients where there's huge swings, and you know making sure you know transducers are leveled and zero. The sort of the little things can make a big difference. Yeah, those are all really great points. Thank you, Rich. Um, and, and, of course, before you get to the cath lab, you've probably also done PFTs or, you know, investigation for parenchymal lung disease. You've probably already done the ventilation perfusion scan. You know, you have to do all the rest of the diagnostic workup as well. Um, and then the functional impairment of PAH is, you know, it's, it's really multifaceted. The patients come to us because they can't do the things that they enjoy doing. They have reduced exercise capacity, they're struggling with their daily life, but then this diagnosis can also result in a number of other impairments like, you know, can they, can they travel, they're on complicated medications, what's their prognosis, you know, do they get depressed, do they start having problems with sleep, you know, what happens to their relationships, their loved ones, the social impact of this, um, losing control, can they work? Um, it's, you know, it's, it really takes a great toll, and I think that's one of the reasons it's very important to be at a center that has the um, really multidisciplinary group. Uh, you know, I can't um, say enough about how much time our nursing staff spends with these patients and, you know, all the other supportive um, allied healthcare professionals that we have uh, take care of these patients. So, Rich, yeah, you know, let's say we've made a diagnosis. You know, what's the next step in assessing their risk? Yeah, so what we know, know is that, Val, is that, uh, you know, risk assessment is critical. And, you know, if, as with many diseases, um, determining where a patient fits on the risk scale is, is really important to make treatment decisions and follow-up. And, you know, there's a lot that's, of work that's come out on this in the last few years, really, defining a number of parameters that seem to correlate with outcome. And this is a, a very commonly um, used table of, of various 
markers of risk in that put a patient into low, intermediate, or high risk. And most of these are fairly, you know, intuitive. You think, you know, obviously functional class, six-minute walk distance, exercise capacity, and TPO-BMP. You can see the list here. But, you know, to that end, you know, several groups have looked at um, scoring systems, and this is a one that's emerged as a very powerful tool, the Reveal Calculator 2.0, where one can quantify uh, risk using a number of parameters and, you know, not to get into the weeds here in the interest of time, but, you know, a number of these markers, and that can be looked at not just at baseline now, but at follow-up visits, and, and I think that's the important point. There are three European-based registries that I would uh, direct you to, which do very similar things in terms of um, looking at various parameters and coming up with a risk score, putting a patient to low, intermediate, or high risk, with the, the purpose of really following patients. And I do think you can see on these Kaplan-Meier curves that whether a patient fell into low, intermediate, or high risk based on these various systems of scoring, it, it, it separated their prognostic um, prediction very nicely. And not just at baseline, but maybe more importantly at follow-up. And this is a, a sort of gets to what we tell patients is that we don't really know what your prognosis is on day one. We can tell you more after we see how you responded to medication. And so the, the recommendation to do risk assessment at every follow-up evaluation, I think, is a pretty hard recommendation and, and a very powerful one. So, you know, that's, I think, incorporated into most of, if not all, of our practices. Um, and I can tell you personally that I don't think I did it very well up until, you know, the data really convinced me that we need to have a systematic approach to risk assessment. Val, what, what do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, my quote that that uh, that even my dear colleague Ray Benza loved is, "Every interaction is an opportunity to assess risk. Every right. time we see the patient, we should be doing it, and and it's very easy to do. Um, you know, the reveal risk calculator may be a little bit more complex, may take a little bit more time." But you can do the French non-invasive approach, mm -hmm. you know, using three fingers in the in the in the office when you ever you see a patient, you know. So you count: did are they functional class one or two? Is their hall walk over 440? And is their BNP normal? And I don't know about you, Rich. I do all of those things at every office visit for a PAH patient. So I, I think you can assess the risk at every clinic visit. Yeah, completely agree. Okay, so. Let's move into treatment options. I, I, I think this has been one of the most exciting uh, aspects of my involvement in PAH over, you know, about two decades now, and I think Rich is, is similar. Uh, you know, when we first started, there was nothing, and then there was one drug for many, many years. It was IV equal and over the course of the past couple of decades, we now have more than a dozen FDA-approved therapies for group 1 PAH, and they are depicted on this slide and can be divided up into really three mechanisms of action, the endothelin pathway, and the problem here is patients with PAH make too much endothelin 1, which is a potent vasoconstrictor, which works on the endothelin A and B response 
receptors on the smooth muscle cells, and we can block the effects of endothelin with oral medications that block those receptors. In the middle, you see the nitric oxide pathway. The problem here is there is um, a deficiency of nitric oxide synthase in these patients, and so we can attack this pathway by either inhibiting the um, PDE um, um, pathway, so we reduce the hydrolysis of cyclic GMP, or we can directly stimulate cyclic GMP um, with with Rio Ciguata direct to SGC stimulator. And then on the right, the, the longest-standing pathway that we've had, uh, the prostacyclin pathway, there's a deficiency in prostacyclin synthase, which converts rocadanic acid into prostacyclin I2. There are a number of prostacyclin analogs that we have that can be delivered either IV, sub-Q, inhaled, or orally. And then there is one agent, an IP receptor agonist, that works on the same pathway, but via a different method mechanism of action. So we have many, many choices now. And listed here, you will see the currently FDA-approved therapies and the categories that they fall into. So it's really wonderful to have all of these choices. Um, the endothelin receptor antagonists, there are three that are commercially approved. Um, of course, we have to um, monitor certain things, um, pregnancy, Bozetin is the only one that still requires monthly LFT monitoring that's not on the label for mafetatin or ambrosetin, although I think many of us still check LFTs on a periodic basis. I'll do it quarterly or, or so in those patients, and you need to check hemoglobin periodically as well. Uh, the, the agents that affect the nitric oxide pathway, two of the PD-5 inhibitors have the indication fildenafil and tadalafil, and then there's one SGC stimulator, Riosiguat. Uh, these are all approved for PAH. I would add that Riosiguat is also approved for um, CTEF that is either persistent six months after um, an endarterectomy or inoperable. And then the prostacyclin pathway, again, there's continuous IV, continuous sub-Q, inhaled oral, um, and then the oral IP receptor agonist, and, and lots of wonderful data on the prostacyclin pathway. And, you know, the, the treatment algorithm is depicted here, and it's really based on risk, as, as Rich so nicely um, uh, described to you earlier. So step one is you need to make sure the diagnosis is correct. We've tried to highlight that. Step two is, you know, for those particular subgroups who might be vasoreactive and might be appropriate for calcium channel blockers. It's a very small proportion of patients. And then if you're non-vasoreactive, what is your risk? If you're in the very highest risk category um, based on the, um, the, the information that Rich shared earlier, you need to be on very aggressive therapy that is going to include upfront combination therapy that includes a parenteral prostacycline. Um, if you're at lower intermediate risk, the majority of the patients are getting initial oral combination therapy. But that's really step one, and probably even more important than that step is what happens at that next follow-up. You have to have a structured follow-up um, at the three- to six-month time frame. I'm doing mine closer to the three-month time frame at this point in time. And, and if you don't meet the criteria for low risk, you need to do something different. You need to escalate, and whether that's add a second agent if you started with one or a third agent if you started with two or go from a, a less invasive to a more invasive prostacyclin, you need to do something to try and drive that patient 
into a low-risk status. The goal should be to achieve and maintain a low-risk status. Um, Rich, is that generally your approach as well? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's you know, again, got, you know, gotten more aggressive as we look at data and, and on prognosis and patients who aren't at low-risk status. So, yeah, that's, that's our goal. And then, you know, we communicate that very clear to the patients that, and, and I think when we talk about the, the need for additional therapies with patients, that's sort of how we communicate it to them that, you know, if we get you to that lower status, you know, not only will you feel better, but you'll have a better outcome. Right. Your likelihood of having an event of, you know, being hospitalized, dying, mm -hmm. that sort of thing is, is lower. Um, now, we focus on all these special therapies because, we, you know, we've gotten very excited about them over the years. We've done lots of research, but it's really important to mention what um, the supportive therapies are. Um, we, in fact, use anticoagulation very little right now. It used to be what we offered to patients with primary pulmonary hypertension based on some observational data, but I think in the current era, with all of the PAH-targeted therapies that we've had, um, registries don't show as much of a benefit. So I've actually taken many of my patients off of anticoagulation. What about you, Rich? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, obviously bleeding risk and the lack of clear benefit doesn't really favor having most patients on it. I mean, occasionally in patients, you know, who have indwelling catheters, who, who have intracardiac shunts, things like that, we may worry a little bit more. Yeah, good point. Um, supplemental oxygen therapy. I mean, oxygen's a vasoconstrictor, right? It, you know, so the, again, there's the, that occasional patient with an intracardiac shunt that you're not going to be able to correct their saturations with oxygen. But in the, the majority of the rest of the patients, you should try to give them oxygen to maintain their saturations in the 90s. And you have to think about it, not just at rest, but also with exercise, sleep, and altitude. Um, we spoke about a lot about diuretics for the case that Rich presented, but even in the rest of our patients, even in our more stable outpatients, we want to try to maintain their diuretics to, to keep them euvolemic, to, to keep their right atrial pressure near normal. Um, exercise, I think, is something that's overlooked. You know, sometimes these patients are very short of breath. They don't think they can exercise, or sometimes doctors are afraid to have them exercise, but there's lots of data that show a supervised rehabilitation, um, pulmonary or cardiac rehabilitation can really improve their exercise tolerance. And, and, and we really try to encourage our patients to get into an exercise program. We don't want them to do any heavy weightlifting where they might have to valsalva. That can make them have syncope, but we want them to do uh, low-level graded aerobic exercise. Um, talking about pregnancy and um, contraception is, is very, very important. These patients have a high risk of both maternal and fetal mortality with pregnancies, uh, and so we need to address that head on. And then, again, the incidence of depression is high. Um, the psychiatric implications are, you know, are very substantial, so it's important to assess those as well. Um, now, I think monitoring is the key. Rich talked about risk assessment, and we're talking about driving patients into a low-risk status. And so it is important to continuously monitor these patients. Um, and, in, you know, I, as I said, in the office, you know, you can do a clinical assessment. You can always do a functional class. You're asking about syncope. You're 
asking about progression of symptoms. You're examining them for right ventricular failure. Um, in my clinic, we do a hall walk with just about any, every visit. Some, some more, uh, do more sophisticated um, exercise tests, such as a cardiopulmonary exercise test. We'll get biomarkers at every visit as well. And then I think there's more variation at the frequency the other tests are uh, being performed. We'll do an echo at least once a year or, or more frequently if the patient has uh, concerning symptoms. And, and then again, there's a lot of variation at, with which a right heart catheterization is repeated. Um, I certainly repeat it um, sometime in the first six to 12 months in, in most of my patients, just to, again, to do that more formalized risk assessment. But if they're at low risk at that point, I may not regularly repeat the heart catheterization. Uh, Rich, how do you approach some of those more variable tests? Uh, how frequently do you do echoes in, in cath? Yeah, I mean, I certainly I think very similar to you as well. The echoes, you know, sort of a four to four month period. I mean, a repeat cath is sort of, again, very patient dependent. If I have a concern the patient's not doing well and, and may need, you know, even parenteral therapy added on, um, or I'm just not sure, then I'll recath them. And I say most patients get at least one follow-up cath around, around six months. Um, and then after that, it, it, it's kind of variable. Great. So um, let's go on to another case. This is a patient of mine. She's 37. She has Sjogren's. I met her first in May of 2017, at which time she had a six-month history of progressive dyspnea. I characterized her as functional class three at the time. Uh, she had occasional palpitations, but the rest of her review of systems was unremarkable, and, and she really didn't have any other past medical or surgical history. Her physical examination was consistent with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Her vitals were normal, as you can see there. Her carotid upstrokes were reduced. Her JVP was a little bit high. She had a palpable right ventricular heave, a loud pulmonic component to her second heart sound, and a tricuspid regurgitant murmur. Um, we methodically did the evaluation that included an echocardiogram, which demonstrated moderate right ventricular enlargement and dysfunction, an RV pressure overload pattern, an estimated RVSP of 85. Her hall walk was 350, but this is something that I feel is really important. You know, we have that magic number of 440 on all the risk assessments, but I feel like you need to put hall walks in context with the expected for that patient's age, gender, and height. Um, and, you know, while 350 may be okay for some, this young woman had a predicted of 650. So it tells me she's really markedly impaired. Her VQ was normal. Her PFT showed normal volumes and flows. Her DL was uh, low, as we sometimes see in the connective tissue disease patients. So we did a chest CT, a high-res CT that did not show ILD. Her HIV was negative. Her LFTs were normal, and her BNP was 320. And then here are her hemodynamics. Her right atrial pressure was 7. Her mean pulmonary artery pressure was 58. Um, did, I'm sorry, 56 and did not change with nitric oxide. Her wedge was 8. Her cardiac index was a little bit on the low side, about 2.4. So her PVR calculated to 12.4 wood units. So pretty sick lady. In the old days, this woman would have gone directly on to parenteral therapy. Um, and, and we did talk about that. 
Um, but I feel a little bit more comfortable with careful, careful follow-up starting patients on upfront oral combination therapy. So she was started on an ERA and TDE5. Um, and we saw her at three months. She was improved, but I would still call her functional class three. Her hall walk had improved a smidge, 385, but still far from our goal of 440 and even farther from the predicted for her age and height. Her BNP was better, but still high. She is still not meeting low-risk criteria, so it was at that point that a parenteral prostacycline was added. So, uh, Rich, I, I think what we have um, done with this, this patient uh, was, um, you know, really consistent with the evolving treatment paradigm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would, you know, just, you know, applaud to how you manage a case like this and, and really for the audience that, you know, it's all about the follow-up and, and the closeness and rigorousness of the follow-up for a patient like this, you know, because it could have gone one of two ways, obviously. She could have gotten a lot better or, or she could not have gotten a lot better, which happened in your case. And if that patient was lost to follow-up and just was on two oral medications, you know, you'd, you, could have, you could have had an adverse outcome. So, so that's, the, that's the key message, I think. Um, the, the, yeah, so just sort of in closing... And then we do have, a, I think, a couple questions here, but, you know, and this is really by way of review. I mean, we really have evolved in how we treat pulmonary hypertension now. Um, and it's really, I think, it's a testament to, you know, the development of therapies and effective therapies. And in the past, you know, when we had one drug available, we just had one choice. And then as more drugs became available that worked through different pathways, you had the option of adding drug two to drug one and then drug three drug one or two or three. And that may be, you know, a reasonable approach still in some patients, sequential combination therapy. Um, there are very good studies that show that benefit um, with add-on um, therapies, either ERA or prostacycline pathway agents. But I think, you know, more recently, um, we, I think, have evolved to the concept of combination therapy up front. And that's um, a paradigm that, you know, does get some fairly, you know, strong recommendation in, in the world symposium that Val alluded to with the algorithm is that for most patients, upfront combination therapy. This is an ambition trial, which is one study that kind of showed that. We're not going to get into any details in the interest of time, except to say this was sort of the first upfront combination therapy randomized trial where patients were assigned to getting either ambrosentin or tadalafil or the combination, so a three-arm study. Um, and they looked at time to clinical improvement, essentially. So a patient didn't get, just get worse, but they reached some clinical threshold of functional class and signal walk distance, et cetera. And so that's basically what was shown here. And this was really a landmark study in that, in that context of being two drugs up front versus either one alone, and then the, the clinical combination endpoint um, that was looked at in this trial of an inadequate clinical response. And in fact, um, and this is laid out here, but in fact, we're, they were able to show that this approach of combination therapy up front did um, lead to a significant risk reduction compared to monotherapy, and this was pooled monotherapy with um, either ambrosentin or tadalafil. And so you can see that um, almost 
relative risk reduction, which was certainly quite a, a powerful finding. And um, when they looked at specifically hospitalization, um, you can see here similar robust results of reduction in need for hospitalization with the combination approach. And we've seen this in other trials as well. Um, the Serafin trial with Mastitentan, the Griffin trial with Selexapag, where, where this combination approach seems to be associated with a reduction in hospitalization for PAH. So that's, I think, is an important endpoint and one that we're seeing emerge from these various trials. So finally, wrapping up with lung transplantation, um, although we do have these effective therapies, I'm sorry, it's a, literally a jackhammer going off outside my window now. Um, we almost made it through. Um, no, no ambulances, though. We've had a few of those and the jackhammer. So um, lung transplantation still does have a role. Um, and the, the lung transplant has evolved. Um, certainly, the need for lung transplant has decreased in the era of multiple effective medical therapies, um, but we still have patients for in whom lung transplant is, is important uh, as an option and if they're not doing well or meeting treatment goals on medical therapy. And the question comes up, Al, you know, what is the timing of lung, lung transplant referral or listing? I mean, how do you approach it? Yeah, I think that's an even trickier question now with the LAS score and, and, and how mm -hmm. that impacts uh, thing. So, you, you know, I think in the, the World Symposium algorithm was really meant to be something that could be applied across the world. And I think that the lung allocation systems are, are different in, in all different places. I mean, back in the day, we used to just pe put people on the list to gather time because that was the only thing that mattered. You know, now, now my lung transplant folks don't really want to evaluate patients unless they still have functional class three symptoms and, and a suboptimal hall walk on, you know, lots of medical therapy. So I think there's probably a lot of institutional variation uh, in, in how to manage those referrals. But, but certainly if a patient is still at intermediate or high risk, despite uh, all the aggressive therapies that, that we have tried for the PAH, uh, the lung transplant team should be involved. And, and it, it may be different at other institutions. How, how do you handle it, Rich? Yeah, I, th I, very, I think very similarly. I mean, I think that we have a very busy lung transplant program. I think they did over like 100 last year. But, and, so the, and so the waiting time is actually uh, relatively short once patients are listed. So we, I think we have the luxury in some ways of, you know, really waiting until we see how they're doing on maximum medical therapy. Uh, and we're not usually too late once we've listed them there. In most cases, we'll get the transplant um, a relatively short period of time. So that, that works, you know, works for our program. And, you know, we obviously have patients who aren't going to be transplant candidates because of their BMIs or other age, those kind of things. But, you know, for the young patient that's otherwise a good candidate, we're, you know, we'll wait till they're on parenteral therapy and then at least get them evaluated and then go from there. What about reflux and scleroderma, esophageal dysmotility? Uh, that's a challenge for us sometimes. Yeah, it's a huge problem. And, you know, we, again, we have some aggressive uh, approaches with intervention to try to reduce the reflux. Um, I think that our experience at the UCLA program, which has a lot of scleroderma patients, has been actually relatively okay with maximum reflux management and have not seen a lot of major problems with 
with the donor lungs afterwards, um, but it, it is a problem. There's no easy answer to. Um, so, um, not, you know, quality of life is listed here just because it really to remind us that in the end it really is about quality of life. And although quality of life has not been an endpoint that really has led to approval of any of these treatments, you know, it really is in some ways the most important endpoint because, you know, if a patient's hemodynamics are better or their BMP is lower, does that really matter if their quality of life is, is not better? And there are emerging studies and data on improvement in quality of life with these therapies. But I think it's just sort of a, a, a call to really look at things like quality of life, you know, home activity monitoring, those kind of patient-centered uh, metrics to evaluate our therapies going forward. Well, Rich, it was such a pleasure doing this program with you. I, I enjoy uh, working with you. I learn from you every time I do something with you. So, so thanks for doing this with me. And I'd also like to thank the audience for taking the time to, uh, to join us today as well. So um, everyone stay safe and hope to see you soon for another program. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by the American Thoracic Society and AKH and is supported by an independent educational grant from Actillion Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated, the Janssen Pharmaceutical Company of Johnson & Johnson, and Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.